0: Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Gabe Coyle, and I am the campus pastor here at Christ Communities, downtown campus. And so many people right now, we're right in the middle of spring break season, right? So so many people are out taking vacations, they're out traveling. And what you're seeing is Twitter just kind of explode with all these hashtags of hashtag no regrets, (laughs) or hashtag YOLO. And if you're not familiar... If you're not familiar with YOLO, if you're not a Twitter monger, if you're not a tweeter, um, YOLO is shorthand for you only live once, right? And what happens is usually somebody does something crazy. They drink too much or they party too hard. They blow off work. They eat a burger the size of their head. And then they hashtag no regrets, YOLO, as a way of saying, hey, we only live once, so live it up now, right? Live it up. And you'll find images all over Twitter that say stuff like this up on the screen. Life is too short to worry about stupid things. Have fun. Regret nothing. And don't let people bring you down. Or, in the end, we only regret the chances we didn't take. Now, when you first hear that, you may think, wow, that's kind of profound. If you've been hanging out in Colorado for a little while, maybe you think, man, that sounds a little profound. Smoking the dudes. Now, I was hoping you would get there, but nobody laughed, so I had to take it to the explicit. But in reality, it's kind of absurd. Uh, it's terribly flawed, this philosophy. It's just not livable. And there are a couple reasons as to why that's the case. First, despite the effervescent wisdom that consistently flows from Twitter hashtags, um, we, do, we do actually have a lot that we regret, Right? It's in those moments where you're finally free and your mind begins to wander, whether for me, I'm out walking my dog, sitting, drinking a cup of coffee, wandering the major questions of life, or trying to read a book, looking through my Facebook photos. It's in those moments we have what creeps in this deep feeling of regret, maybe over that one hour last week, maybe the last day, or maybe even over a period of your life. No one's immune, and it actually reminded me of another picture that I found the other day. If you like Star Wars, (laughs) you'll get it. If you don't like Star Wars, I'm really sorry. Um, Maybe I'll regret this. Um, But it's a a picture of a stormtrooper, and he has his hands on the forehead of his helmet, and it reads, Regrets, those were the droids you were looking for. (laughs) Um, Seriously, though... (laughs) Some of you got it. Thank you. I was nervous about that one. So seriously though, we try to avoid regret, we try to ignore it, but it feels inevitable. Uh, The new album from the band Foster the People, I've just been listening to incessantly this past week, it testifies to this reality in one of their newer songs, Coming of Age, when they sing, you know, I try to live without regrets. I'm always moving forward, not looking back. But I tend to leave a trail of debt while I'm moving ahead, and so I'm stepping away. We can hate it, we can act like we don't have it, but we all know we tend to leave a trail of debt or or a wake of regret behind us. Well, secondly, the other reason why this life view hashtag no regrets just isn't livable is because there are many things in life that most of us, if not all of us can agree, should build up a sense of appropriate regret, Right? To say that you don't have any regrets in life means that you've always made the best decision. You're the best person you could ever be and always will be. And most of us in here, if we're honest with ourselves, would not agree with that statement. Or to say, if you have no regrets, is to believe that there are no right and wrong choices. No matter what decision you make, there is no morality. Murder is not a wrong decision. Love is not a right one, which I hope no matter whether you're a Christian or not and you're here this morning, you can see how absurd that sounds when it comes down to reality. It made me think of another picture, and this one's not funny, but a picture I saw on a blog called Humans of New York. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a photo blog by a photographer and he does an interesting sociological study by capturing images of New Yorkers. And then he interviews them and he shares just a snippet of that interview. And here in this one picture, this is what the woman sitting on this suitcase says. I wish I'd partied a little less. People always say, be true to yourself. But that's misleading because there are two selves. There's your short-term self And there's your long-term self. And if you're only true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. How many of you have ever felt that way? It's the language of, I wished I had, or I wish I never, the language of painful regret that regurgitates itself in our memories. We all live with regret. It can keep you up at night. It can cause you to eat. (laughs) It can cause you to stop eating. And so we're all left asking the question, what do we do? I mean, what can we do? The author of the book of Hebrews, the passage that was just read for us this morning, comes from this book called Hebrews. And he tells us the only way to silence the roar of regret is to let our regrets die with Jesus once for all. Let our regrets die with Jesus once for all. This is different than avoiding Or ignoring our regret, but it's giving it to God to deal with in Jesus once and for all. You see, regret, it carries two bags commonly with it. The bag, the baggage of guilt and the baggage of fear. Regret has guilt over making wrong decisions that have either destroyed our lives or those lives around us. And then it also carries the baggage of fear because we're afraid of the wrong decisions we've made have now ruined whatever future we have. And slowly the implications and the consequences of the decisions we've made, those regrets, leave us hopeless and fearful. Central to the Christian faith is not ignoring our regrets. Actually, it's admitting that we have much to be and we have much regrets. But also central is the fact that that these regrets don't have to have the last word on your life. Because of what God has done in the cross of Jesus, you can be forgiven of the past and you can actually be given hope for the future, but you have to let your regrets die with Jesus once for all. And as we look at Hebrews 10 today, our author, he won't let us miss these three things, okay? These three things, we're going to be walking through them. One, why we can't remove our regret. Two, how Jesus can remove our regret. And then thirdly, what happens when we let our regrets die with Jesus, okay? If you haven't already, open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, if you're not using your iPhone or your iPad, we have some on the back of the dividers there, the community Bibles. And Hebrews chapter 10 is found on page 651. And before we dive in, I'm just going to take a moment to pray together, okay? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open up your word. Lord, whatever lens that we're seeking to look at, through, look, look at your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us truth. He would give us wisdom. He would allow us to be honest with ourselves. Whatever pain, grief we are dealing with, whatever deception we want to hold on to as truth in our lives, I pray by the power of your spirit, your word would speak to us afresh this morning. The timelessness of your word, may it be timely, in the hearts of those who seek to follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 from our author, is why we can't remove our own regret. Okay, so let's look at verse 1 together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As a reminder, Hebrews is actually a sermon captured in letter form sent to a church. A Jewish, more than likely, a Jewish urban congregation who would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and some of them may even have had a family pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to sacrifice to the Lord, not unlike many Muslims still do to go to Mecca, obviously to different gods, but the idea of a pilgrimage, to go and sacrifice. So when the author highlights sacrifices every year, they would have known that he was talking about the Day of Atonement. Many times we still use the language of Yom Kippur. It's still on many of our calendars. A day when the high priest, the greatest out of the order of the priests, would go in the most holy place of the temple once a year, and he would make a single sacrifice before God for the whole nation of Israel, for all their regrets, all their sins over the past year. But the author's telling us that bulls and goats' sacrifices were never to be an in and of themselves. Um, they were always to point to something better that was to come. And, and we ask the question, and almost every person in this Jewish congregation is wondering, well, how can you say that? How can you really say that? author of Hebrews, who we don't really know who it is. How can you say that? Because if the old sacrificial system really worked, these wouldn't have to be sacrifices made every year. The Day of Atonement would be singular rather than annual. If it was adequate to care for guilt and regret, then it would only need to be done once to fix what was broken, to perfect what had become flawed. Instead, what the old sacrificial system did, as we see here in our passage is it gives a reminder of sins every year. In other words, it was designed to keep the wounds of the conscience open. Do you see what I'm saying? It kept regret alive until final forgiveness came. Like any shadow, we don't stay entrenched with the shadow. We look for the form, the solid, that which we can touch, hold, embrace. Similar with the sacrificial system of old. When Yom Kippur rolled around each year and a goat was sacrificed, it was a reminder of all your regrets that needed to be paid for again. And you knew that next year you would have to face them again with another sacrifice, another goat, another special trip, something more that had to be done, another task to finally feel forgiven. I mean, can you see how we can't remove our guilt and our regrets on our own over and over again? The harder we work to remove our regrets by ourselves, to cover our own past mistakes, actually, regret grows. The philosopher C.S. Lewis, he said so wisely, "No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good." No man knows how bad truly he is until he tries very hard to be good. It's kind of like cleaning the bathroom, which is my job at home. I'm not saying I do a good job, but that's my job, one of my jobs at home. And as soon as I start scrubbing the tile in the bathroom, I notice you know, that there is um, some residue on the glass doors. So then I wipe down the glass doors and then I notice the floors need to be swept and then the, the shelves need to be dusted and, and then I get frustrated. Um, but let's just say... The longer we keep cleaning and trying to deal with our own regrets ourselves, the more we see that we have to be, the the more regrets we realize we actually have. So trying to follow a set of rituals, offer the right sacrifices, whatever system you're trying to use, you come out one of two ways. You either come out full of pride because you finally clean the kitchen or the restroom exactly the way it should be done, or you come out with despair. It's just too intense. I'm worn out with Mr. Clean. I'm, I'm just kind of a little high on the fumes. You know, like, oh, I'm frustrated. What do I got to do next? Neither of which of being full of pride or full of despair is really the most enjoyable kind of person you like to be around, right? You become prideful when you think you're actually succeeding and getting rid of your own regrets. And then you become full of despair when reality hits and you realize how dirty of a situation you found yourself. So, for example, you get a promotion at your job. You've been going to church for like the past six weeks straight. This is like your new record. And your girlfriend just said, yes, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. She said, yes, your engagement. And if it's all based on your sacrifice, how are you at the end of that day? <laughs> Man, I'm doing pretty good. If you want to know how to live life, look at me. I've got it figured out. I've got a good job. I'm, I'm right with my church. You know, I've got this girl on my shoulder but on the flip side what happens when your boss calls you into his office and he says gabe you know your work's been pretty sloppy lately and you realize you look over at your bible it's kind of dusty you haven't opened it for the past two weeks and then you sit down with your girlfriend and she over a cup of coffee and heartbreaking reality says she just doesn't see the two of you together in the future what's the opposite response despair right If it's all about what you're doing, then your circumstances, how you're performing, define your attitude, define your disposition. And this is why these old structures used to try and remove our regrets were only a foreshadowing of the one who could actually remove our regrets for good. It could never be what we do, ever. As it says in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We, we all need to be reminded that we can't remove our regrets. But our author's goal was never to leave us hopeless, <laughs> to just point out what we can't do and then kick us out the door. No, he wants us to see how Jesus can remove our regrets. Look at verse 5. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered, obviously, according to the law, the Old Testament. Then he added... Behold, I have come to do your will. And so he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author, he doesn't want us to miss why Jesus came to the earth. He doesn't want us to miss why God became incarnate, why God became flesh. And to help us, he actually quotes an old psalm, Psalm 40. Now, the Psalms were the songs and the poetry of the nation of Israel, very much sung and always used many times to to, to, to point to one Messiah who would come, one Redeemer who would finally, in the midst of their anguish, make all wrongs right, the true promised king and priest and ruler. These Psalms were consistently pointing to someone greater. And when our author quotes Psalm forty the readers of this original book of Hebrews, they would have known and they would have picked up what our author is putting down. They would have seen what he's trying to do with this psalm. We have to do a little more work. We're a little more distant. We got to figure out what's going on here a little bit better. But ultimately what we see is God's goal, even in Israel with all of its sacrifices, it was never, it was never to have these sacrifices in perpetuity. But God has always longed for the hearts of his people. He's always longed to be present with so that they might find joy in him and find joy in obeying him and entrusting him. Finally, where our wills are bent in alignment with his wills and we find great joy and goodness in that. I mean, one of the early examples of this very fact is um, in First Samuel 15. God's spokesman, Samuel, he's a prophet. He's talking to the first king of Israel. King Saul. And, uh, and there's this ornery situation where King Saul was commanded to, to slaughter all livestock that are in neighboring towns. And if that bothers you this morning, please let's talk later about it. Let's not deal with it right now. But trust me, it's okay. <laughs> it's different culturally. But he was commanded to slaughter all the livestock in whatever town he conquered. And what does Saul do? He doesn't slaughter the livestock in the neighboring town. And so Samuel comes and he goes, what is this I hear? I hear this livestock hanging out in the background. And Saul goes, oh, that was the people. It was the people's fault. So first he blame shifts and points to the people that he was called to rule. And then he says, ah, don't you see, Samuel? We kept these sheeps and these goats so that we could sacrifice them to God. Such a pietist answer, right? Oh, well, in that case, Saul... Well, disobey God so that you might worship him. This is great. No, that's not what Samuel says at all. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, if you, if you have your Bibles. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." God never instituted the sacrificial system as a way to avoid God or to ignore God or to just appease God. But it was an avenue by the appeasement of God's wrath and the covering of our sin that we might relate to God and have a relationship with him so that we might once again find great joy in trusting him and living with him and honoring him and obeying him. If you look throughout the gospel accounts and you look throughout the New Testament, You see that the cross, that Jesus came to earth to die, for the cross is central, and it's an act of perfect obedience to God the Father. Over and over again, why does Jesus come? Because the Father sent him. Why does Jesus come? What does he do on the cross? It's an act of perfect obedience to his calling. The Son of God's will was in perfect alignment with God the Father, and that they both had compassion over the brokenness of humanity. So when God the Father called the Son to come and die for the world, the Son was obedient to voluntarily fulfill the call, even to the point of bodily death, even death on a cross so that we could be forgiven. And so in Psalm 40, that's quoted here in Hebrews 10, we see this theme of Jesus being perfectly obedient. His obedience takes height in the cross, ultimately, Jesus is the one man who, being also God, lived without one thing, one memory, one day of regret. Can you imagine that? Being absolutely perfect, perfectly obeying God. And he lived the life we couldn't live. And instead of offering a goat on Yom Kippur, he offers himself the perfect sacrifice and the perfect act of obedience for our salvation. And his death was so potent that it covers retroactively and proactively. It covers all the sin of the past and all the sin of the future centered in this one act of obedience in the cross. Look at verse 11. The Hebrews writer, he makes an observation. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you're to scour the ancient temple, the ancient tabernacle, what you'll never find is a chair for the priests which is kind of interesting. Maybe they had really strong calf muscles as they're walking around all the time. But there was never a chair in the temple or the tabernacle. And that's because their job was never done. Every day, new sacrifices. Every week, every year rolled around new sacrifices until Jesus, until on the cross, he screams what? It is finished. And we see here in Hebrews, he's not standing. He's sitting The work has been completed. His obedience has come to a great climax in his death on the cross for the redemption of broken humanity, doing something we could never fathom to accomplish. And our only hope, as we think about the regrets that haunt us, our only hope of ever removing is to surrender our regrets to him and let them die with Jesus on the cross. And then he actively takes those regrets upon himself. And as we see here, our consciences are cleaned of all guilt and regret before God. And it's through his death that we are perfected, sanctified. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're probably asking the question, what on earth does it mean to be sanctified, right? And if you are a Christian and you're here this morning, you may be asking that question as well, and that's okay. But I think the best way to answer that question is actually to see what happens when you let your regrets die with Jesus, okay? Well, the word sanctify has the meaning of being made whole. It's the meaning of purity, of holiness is the Christian word that's been used. A life void of regret, no longer stained with the mistakes of your past, No present guilt over sin. And all of this is only possible through Jesus Christ. An absolute trust that our regrets have died with him on the cross. And when he rose on the third day, our regrets stayed in the grave. They were paid for. They didn't rise again to be pushed into our face when we come before the presence of God. You're washed clean, perfected because of Jesus. Now, okay, each one of us, We know ourselves, don't we, pretty well. We try to, and then sometimes we self-deceive ourselves and yada, yada. But what we do know is that we don't act perfectly, do we? Our relationships, if you asked your spouse or your friend, they would all agree that you don't act perfectly. So what does this perfect mean? We've been made perfect. Whenever you have a history with someone, whenever you have a history with someone, it can be hard to have a genuine relationship with them, right? If they stabbed you in the back, They stole something from you. They betrayed your trust. They broke your heart, whatever. This regret, this pain, this wrong becomes a barrier in your relationship from any meaningful intimacy ever taking place. Well, in the gospel, Jesus' death means that our sin against a good God has been forgiven. Those regrets... Those sins have been placed upon Christ and the barrier has been removed. And now we are invited into intimate relationship, not based on anything we've done to remove that barrier, but all because of what Christ has done on the cross through his perfect obedience to the point of death. In the gospel, it means Jesus's death has paid for it all. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit, he also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, I used to wrestle with, what does it mean that God forgets? What does it mean that God doesn't remember? when God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, what it doesn't mean is that God has a memory lapse. You know, he forgot who won the best supporting actress or who was the best supporting actress at the Oscars this past year. Um, he's not wiping away the hard drive of his memory because of your sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't remember any of the past. He wouldn't actually remember the cross where all the sin was taken upon to Jesus. So he would have no remembrance of the past, but he would always be living in the present. That sounds pretty awful. <laughs> And that's not what we see in scripture. Whenever the Bible talks about God remembering something, that means he acts upon it. When he makes a promise, when he makes a pledge, when he has a goal, when he's set on purpose, he acts, he will follow through. So when God says he will remember our lawless deeds and our sins no more, that means he will not act upon us with judgment as we deserve. But instead, he remembers Jesus' perfect obedience to the point of death on the cross. And he treats us with grace, perfectly just, because of Christ. He remembers our lawless deeds and our sins no more and acts upon us with grace and generosity, perfectly just, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And it's this kind of good news, this gospel, it'll transform how we approach God and it'll transform how we live our lives. And so specifically, let's look at how this transforms how we deal with regret going forward, okay? First, how do we deal with our own regrets? Well, we repent of our own regrets differently, differently. In the Christian faith, we've said this already, there's this acute awareness that we are more sinful than we ever could have realized But simultaneously, we are more loved than we could have ever fathomed. And it finds its crux, its center in the cross of Jesus Christ. So what do I mean? There's an image behind me, I think. Um, The more you come to know God, the more you see him in the beauty of his holy love, perfect love and all his goodness, the more exalted he is. You know, whenever you affirm someone or you admire someone, we use the phrase, oh, you're putting him up on a pedestal right? You're putting them up on a pedestal. It's the way of saying, they are so much higher than I am, and I want to worship them. I want to affirm that they are so much greater than I. And the more you dive into who God is, as he's revealed in his word, and as he's revealed in the Holy Spirit, the more we see his greatness, his grandeur, his sacrificial love displayed in the cross. And then simultaneously, we begin to see our counterfeit love, we begin to see how many times the acts of service we do are really selfish driven. The more we see the own wretchedness of our own hearts. And so we get this gap that continues to grow as God becomes more exalted and we become a greater awareness of our own sin. But the Christian doesn't just look at that chasm and feel hopeless. What happens is the cross gets bigger and bigger in our focus. It becomes more central to who we are, more grand in its grace and its justice. And this transforms how we repent, okay? There are two different kinds of ways of repenting. If you look at almost every religion, there's empty religious repentance. And what does that mean? Well, religious repentance is when we repent just to avoid consequences. It's kind of when... If you remember, as a child, your parents would say, you better apologize to your sister or you're going to your room. I got that one a lot. Um, And so you would say, I'm sorry. In order to avoid avoid more punishment, it all became about protecting yourself rather than true brokenness. Whereas gospel-shaped repentance, repentance that takes its shape because of what Christ has done on the cross, It takes shape in our very lives to the point that we get disgusted at sin because when it breaks God's heart, it breaks our heart. It's not about just self-preservation, but it's about God glorification. It's about honoring Him and knowing Him and loving Him. Similarly, in empty religious repentance, we say the right words many times to earn God's love or to manipulate Him, just like Saul did. He did the wrong thing, and then he said, Ah, but you see, I kept these sheep and these goats and these bulls as sacrifices. Now, aren't I accepted? We many times try to decrease that gap by saying God is great, but I'm not that bad. So then I try to jump the gap and circumvent the cross altogether. That's empty religious repentance where gospel repentance really wrestles with the weight of what has just happened and who you are wrestles with the weight of who God is and the fact that he would forgive us through Jesus. And we rest and receive what has been accomplished in Christ for us. That's gospel-shaped repentance. And it changes the way we repent of our regrets. Secondly, we see um, how, we, how we, this transforms how we relate to the regrets of others and that we release others from their regrets frequently. We no longer hold grudges but we forgive as we have been forgiven. Um, When others come to you with regrets on the things they've done to you, you release them from their debt, what they owe you, because you know you've been released from your debt against a holy God. If you really want to know whether you've actually been freed from regret in the gospel, ask yourself how easy it is to forgive others. Ask yourself how easy it is to forgive others. Jesus tells the story in Matthew chapter 6 highlighting how those who know the joy of freedom from regret through his once-for-all sacrifice, they'll also release others from their wrongs against them, and they'll do it frequently, not just seven times. We can count it on our fingers, waiting for them to run out of opportunities, but incessantly, incessantly. So how this transforms how we deal with regret, not only with ourselves and with others, but how we now approach God, and that we run to God with our regrets shamelessly, shamelessly. I want you to think about some of the greatest regrets in your life right now. Those things in life that haunt your dreams, those things in life that you consistently feel like separate you from God, do you have them? I mean, get them in your mind. Take a moment. Those are the very things that Jesus came to die for. It is in the cross of Christ that he has come to die that we might be forgiven and cleansed and perfected by his blood. If you don't believe me, look across the New Testament. Look across the Bible. Forgiveness of sins is God's great passion that we might be reunified with him as we were designed to be. And I'm just going to read a couple passages for you um, just to show you that this is all over the Bible. And I want you to feel the force and just feel the beauty of the good news of the gospel. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 1, 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 1, 77. Jesus came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Luke 3, 3. And Jesus went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts 26:18. to open their eyes so that they might turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 1, 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins and Hebrews 10:18 where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin it's when you let your regrets die with Jesus once for all you can run to God shamelessly because your regrets your failures your sins have been utterly completely totally for all time paid for and forgiven the cross. Will you let your regrets die with Jesus once and for all? Hashtag once and for all. Let's pray. Our Father, when I get a greater glimpse of your heart, when I get a greater glimpse of your love and your mercy and your justice, such that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in such perfect unity to redeem a broken world. I do feel the weight of my own sin. (laughs) And sometimes our hearts cry out uh, with the weight of our sin. And God, we thank you so much that you have worked through Christ to invite us into a loving and lasting relationship. May we surrender our regrets to you And surrender our lives to Christ and follow him faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples a meal. Not just any meal, but a very specific meal. A meal that was used to proclaim this gospel, this good news to our senses of taste, of touch, and smell. And it's not as though Christ is being sacrificed every week afresh But we do this in remembrance of the once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ on the cross. We come remembering through common broken bread that is gluten-free, 21st century. And we partake and dip together and remember his body broken for us. Also, we remember through very common juice, the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I want you to know you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to partake in communion. But we do ask that Jesus Christ be your Lord and Savior. You have given your, re- your uh, regrets over to the cross once and for all. But hear me say this too. If you are a Christian and you want to stay and pray in your seat, p- please feel free to do that. This isn't an opportunity yet for us to figure out who's in and who's out. Rather, this is a time for truly honest reflection and response. So if that's prayer for you this morning, please feel free to do so. But if you do come, come down the center aisle, and you'll circle around. We have two communion stations on the flip side of the dividers. After you've partaken in groups of four to six, come back and return to your seats. Now, trust me, I know these aisles are a little closer, so it's a little messy, and that's okay. We're a family. Take your time. No rush. And before we do that, I want to read the words of institution to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, will you come?